Good afternoon. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us here for the Lee Smith Show. I'm Lee Smith, and we have a really um, a, a really terrific show today um, with featuring uh, featuring writer Lafayette Lee. Uh, and I, I I just want to introduce them uh, a, a little bit or introduce uh, int- introduce a couple of general ideas. And that is that I, I remember reading. Um, reading a writer, Evan Perez, and Evan, uh, uh, you know, Evan is on social media. He's also written for a number of, uh, you know, a number of publications. And I remember him pointing out that there are a number of really important writers out there today. You're just, we're just not seeing them in publishing houses. We're not seeing them in, um, in literary magazines and literary journals because those places are filled with such garbage and with such woke junk. And unfortunately, there's a lot of terrific writers who have been sidelined by this garbage. And that made me more attentive. What Evan wrote made, uh, not, 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 not Evan, Alex, I'm sorry. What, 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 Alex, what Alex Perez wrote made me more attentive, though, of course, I wasn't being very attentive to his name here, but made me more attentive to what different writers are doing elsewhere. Um, you know, Al, Al, Alex had talked about what, uh, what, what people were doing on Twitter. Uh, what people were doing on Facebook, how people were actually writing short stories, how people were writing essays, making important points. And I think a lot of you will know a number of these writers. And the reason that this writer, Lafayette Lee, really stood out for me was, um, I mean, for me, someone who's a real writer is someone who shapes your ideas about things, someone who has, uh, someone who's memorable ideas, memorable scenes, memorable phrases really shapes your, your own engagement with the world and for me the the one that really uh, stuck out but there, there's there, there's so much but but one that really that one that really sang for me is when he when he wrote on twitter he said you know he's, he's when, whenever he takes his child's hand or whenever his child takes his hand he always fears that it's going to be the last time that his child wants to hold his hand and i think that any you know any any parent uh any any parent sees that sees that uh, sees that transition from childhood to adulthood uh, or or adolescence and what that means and what that means for generations so with, with, without my uh, con- continued um, bloviating I wanted to introduce Lafayette Lee and I, I wanted to ask him if he could he, he uses a pseudonym of course so I wanted to ask him uh, if he would if he would introduce himself a little more insofar as he's comfortable with and then we'll move on to some of the, you know, some of the great and important themes that he writes about. So, again, Lafayette Lee, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Oh, are you here? Can you hear us? You look like you're ready to go, and you're not on. You're not on mute. Can you hear us? All right. Hey Lafayette, can you hear us okay? So I I, I think you were um, yeah I'm seeing you tweeting there. Can you hear us okay? Is this a a mess up on my end? If you unmute, it should be all right. Oh, 
One sec. How we doing now? Can you guys hear me now? Yep. Snazzy Burrito says he can hear. Anyone else? Lafayette, I'm going to bring you back in and see if I can invite you to speak again. All right. Now, if you can unmute that, if you can hear me. All right. Can you hear me okay? Can you can you speak, Lafayette? Oh. Anyone else having trouble hearing? Snazzy, you said you could hear. Can other people hear? All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get to the bottom of this, and I hope you'll stick with us for just one second longer. All right, Lafayette, I see you. I'm going to try to bring you back in here. Okay. Now, have you hit the, can you hear us at all? Lafayette, can you hear us at all? Lafayette Lee, can you hear us at all? Well, I wonder if, um, I don't know, if you're using a phone, I, I know some people use a laptop. Is that possible? Maybe that'll be easier. You still can't hear us. All right, Lafayette, can you hear us now? Just sing out whenever you can hear us.
<laughs> we see, I see someone recommending U.S. General 25. Maybe just need famous restart everything. I don't know. I don't know how that'll go. We could. Um... Well, you know what, Lafayette? I'm going to remove you from speaker for a second. And then invite you again, and let's see how that works. Let's see. Okay. How's that now? Any improvement? Hmm. Well, we're building a lot of drama here. We've got a lot of great drama in this show. Well, let me see if I can get some professional. Let me see if I can get some professional advice. So if you all would just hold on for a minute or so here. Uh, I'm going to go to one of the uh, producers at call-in and see, what, um, see how we can get some help. One second, please hold on all. Thank you. All right, let's see. Lafayette, Lee, can you hear me at all now? Hmm. Well... Trying to get a hold of one of the producers, not with without much luck here. Lafayette, can you hear us? Or hear me, rather?
All right, let's see how this is. Lafayette, can you uh, can you hear me now? Hi, Lafayette. Well, Lafayette, I'm sending you a message here, a group message. Still can't hear, I'm asking. It seems like you can't. Lafayette, I'm gathering you still can't hear. Hello? Hey, Lafayette, can you hear me now? All right, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? 
Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. We have a we have a little bit of an echo, but it should be okay. Okay. Well, oh, um, if you is that any better? That's perfect. Thank you. That's really good. Well, look, I'm sorry that uh, we had such problems connecting, but I'm glad we finally did. And um, so I, I think you probably didn't hear my introduction before, so I'll go through it again very, very quickly. And it was full of blunders, so I'll do it much better this time. Um, I was explaining how um, a writer, um, a writer, Alex Perez, was explaining that there are a lot of excellent writers out there. They're not um, being read in publishing houses and whatnot, um, but they are in places like social media, and they're really all over the place once you start looking for them. And, and then I explained how I feel that one of the signs of someone who's really writing, someone who's doing real work, is how they, how they help shape your engagement with the world, how they help uh, shape your ideas about things. And that's what... That's what struck me right away. Just reading you on Twitter, very, of course, very short, very short, very short burst, but so important. And some of the me- some some of the memorable things you've written, as I think I told you the one time we spoke briefly, I, I I still have in my 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 head and in my body. More importantly, you know, when you were writing about how your child, every time your child takes your hand when you're out for a walk, you fear that it may be the last time. And I said, this is something that I think expresses what parents have been feeling about their children um, growing up, becoming adolescents, becoming adults for thousands, if not more of year, if not more time. So that's why I wanted to introduce you. Just say you are a, a wonderful, um, amazing writer. And it's such a pleasure to get to speak to you in public and to have other people get a chance to hear your voice and um, and get a chance to hear you elaborate on things and also get a little bit of an introduction. Now, uh, you know, I, 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 I know, I assume that this is a pseudonym, Lafayette Lee. So, you know, I'm going to leave it up to you to introduce yourself insofar as you want. And then I'd like for us to be able to talk about some of the themes that, you know, some of the themes that motivate you, some of the themes that you've been writing about and um, which is as important uh, or not more important or, or more important than your background. So thanks so much again, and I'm sorry for all the technical difficulties, but again, it's such an honor and a thrill to be uh, getting a chance to speak to you today. So thanks so much. No, thank you, Lee. Um, And I do appreciate the very kind introduction. I apologize to everyone who had to deal with my technical difficulties. That's Um, that's quite all right. We all have, yeah, (laughs) we all have our our technical difficulties from time to time. And I'm glad that we finally got it all sorted out. So thanks so wor- for working so hard to get it sorted out so we can all talk today. Thanks. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Um, so when, by, by way of introduction, um, I, my pseudonym is Lafayette Lee. Um, several of you look like familiar faces that I've seen on Twitter. That's kind of where I, that's my bread and butter of, of usually like where I, I kind of focus most of my attention on. I do have a sub stack that um, I've kind of recently resurrected. Um, but, you know, um, for me, I'm a first and foremost, um, I'm a family man. I, uh, I have a wife and children. Um, I'm a veteran. I, uh, I, I live in a Southern state and um, really, you know, I have my roots come from the South and the West. Um, I'm very, I'm a very, uh, 
I'm a very patriotic person. Um, this country means a lot to me. And so a lot of the content I write about is dealing with family history, uh, politics, uh, things like that, that, that um, just as, as your common layman is what I am, um, it, they're things that matter to me. And so I, you know, I'm just thrilled to be here and I, I appreciate the, the very kind introduction. Uh, thanks. <laughs> well, excuse me. Uh, look, I think I, I know one of the things that, that really strikes me uh, and I'm sure it strikes, you know, I'm sure it strikes a lot of other people who are following you on Twitter or have, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the Substack, and I'm glad to see that you're, you know, that you're restarting that and that you'll you know, devote more, more time and energy to it insofar as you're able to. But I think one of the things that a lot of people are really moved by is how your, how your sense of family and how your sense of tradition is tied to your sense of, uh, is tied to your sense of this country. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? I know it's kind of a strangely vague question. No, I, I think that's a great question, actually. Um, yeah, my, you know, my, my people, my ancestors came here in the, in the 1600s. Um, and so there's kind of a, a rootedness to this country uh, and its story that just has always been a very fundamental part of who I am. And so, you know, from a very young age, my family raised me with a keen, you know, kind of acute understanding of where we come from, who we are, um, as the, as the country was shaped, you know, my, my family has always had different tales and stories, family history, uh, that they've related to key points in our nation's history. And so for me as a, as an American, as somebody who does value family, that story is very Mm -hmm. personal to me. Can you talk about some of the different, um, yeah, some of the different historic uh, episodes in our nation's history that your family feels, I don't know how to put it, feels tied to, feels close to? Absolutely. Um, so my first, my first ancestors came over um, in the 1620s and 30s um, into Jamestown. My mm-hmm. wife's people come from wow. the north. They're they're more of like your your Puritan <laughs> side. So I've kind of got the Cavaliers. Wow. She has the Puritan stock. <laughs> wow. Wait, so that's that's amazing. It's not just your family, but your wife's family too. Yeah, you know, um when I met her, I you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. I I didn't like interrogate her, ask for her genealogy while we were, you know, while I was courting <laughs> her. But it kind of later on came up and and it's something that you know, we, we really reinforce with our children, mainly, wow. you know, there's some people that get really uh, into this sort of a thing. And they, I think they read a little more into it than I do, but mm-hmm. I, I always have looked at it like an obligation. Um, you know, we have mm-hmm. inherited something really beautiful and wonderful uh, through blood, sweat and tears of many great generations. And I, I feel like for me as a child growing up, it was very enforced that I have an obligation or responsibility to, those people into this place. Wow. Um, you know, I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought to ask you this before, but now that it comes up, I mean, in lots of ways, I don't know, in some ways it seems that, a, that a long going, uh, an ongoing struggle in this country is between those two different currents of Englishmen who came to the country, the Cavaliers and the Puritans. I mean, I'm not asking if this plays out in your family life, but insofar as there are 
insofar as there are different currents here in America from the beginning. You know, I mean, when we see this in the earliest presidents, we see this in some, we see this in, in some of the different struggles over the future of the country. So is that something that your family has has played a part in as well? Yeah, no, it, it it's funny you bring that up because there, you know, I do see these things. Uh, they're a little pronounced in the family. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Now, this is me possibly reading too much into it. My wife is a very industrious person. Um, she sees the world in a more mechanistic way than me. I see it as a lot huh. more organic. And um, we, huh. you know, she's one of those people who finds a lot of self, like a satisfaction from staying very busy. I take a lot of enjoyment in my leisure. So we've always joked that huh. the family culture is coming out. I don't know how true that is. It could just be personality. Huh. But no, there is that. And we have... You know, other sides of our family have, you know, when it comes to key points in, in our history, the Civil War is a good example of this. There is a little bit of family division over events like that. But I think at the end of the day, we all can rally around a shared story, even though different parts of my family were at war with the other side of the family. And so um, I, I think it's kind of a beautiful vignette for how we as Americans have been able to forge a common identity, despite these these opposite folkways that still have an impact on us today. What what's I mean, what's happening now? I mean, one of the arguments, you know, one of the things that I've that I think has been going on is that people have been that people have been tearing at that social fabric in order to destroy our, you know, our post-Civil War peace, right? I mean, that this is, that the different accommodations we made, the different, um, the different com accommodations we made after the war, I mean, most, most nations that go through a Civil War do not survive, and ours did because of different things that happened. So what do you think is, yeah, I mean, given, given your history, Given your family's history, given your given your sense as a veteran, what do you think is happening to that post Civil War peace? I'm, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot and say, "Are you predicting a, a civil war coming?" But just why have people been hacking away at what you say is an important part of our story? No, that's I, absolutely. I think that's a. I think that's definitely happening. Um, don't it doesn't put me on the spot at all. I mean, I think about this quite often because um, it's hmm. it's to me. I look at that time period, the war between the states, as a it it truly was a triumph in many ways. There were a lot of wounds that many of them didn't close up, and, hmm. and those are things that we that we understand. I mean, they're not there were there were many wounds from that time uh, that were not closed entirely, but as a nation, we were able to quote, accomplish a lot. And there was a, there was, there were also these subtle kind of unspoken agreements on how to move forward that worked. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the surrender at Appomattox was a great example of magnanimity on both sides. You know, the understanding between two fighting men who were on the opposite sides of the battlefield were able to broker a generous, um, Piece together that was that at the time though was very controversial with uh, politicians, particularly in the North at the time, felt that maybe Grant was not being harsh enough. But I think we understand that the 
you know, it was, I, I don't think it was an accident that fighting men were the ones to start to broker that mm. peace. There's a mutual understanding, a sense of shared experience that I think is lost a lot today. Um, huh. And so when you talk about, you know, some of these wounds that are getting picked over again, many of the people that are picking at these wounds, the, the object is not to become a nation again. It's not to bring us into a sense of reconciliation it's mostly exploitative. And I don't think it's an accident that some of the forces driving those, those divisions the most are people who do not have the same sense of shared experience. Um, I, I'm a veteran. And so I see people being, I see Americans from every walk of life. I see Americans who have only been here for a generation or so, but we're able to find a common bond that allows us to accomplish very difficult death-defying things together um, I would say that, you know, as a veteran kind of looking at it that way, I think that that loss of experience, that sense of sacrifice that many of our forefathers experienced together, I think that losing that has made it harder for us to reconcile now. I think it makes it more difficult for people to appreciate how important it is to find reconciliation. Um, there's a lot of people who don't understand conflict. They don't know the price, the, you know, the butcher's bill that has to be paid. So they play with forces that they can't really appreciate. Right. Is that what you meant when you said that it's not surprising that fighting men <clears throat> came to this accommodation rather at the, 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 you know, um, Appomattox, that it wasn't politicians who came to this end. It was fighting men who, who understood what the bill was. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I think that that was, I think that that couldn't have happened any other way. Um, it was, it was interesting if you, you know, if you read deeper into the history of the war between the states, you know, there were definitely strong opinions on both sides, even from fighting men, but there, a lot of the, you know, the, the people who paid the biggest price in all of this were the fighting men uh, that, and there, you know, there, it's kind of this respect for your enemy that transcends the politics of your day. You know, you'll see this with veterans in some of the wars more recently. You know, there's not necessarily a love for the enemy, but there's a respect that comes about on dealing with a formidable mm -hmm. adversary. And so I, I oftentimes see this same contrast between, you know, people that talk about these issues versus people that have experienced them. And, and so I think that that real experience is invaluable. Wow. Well, I mean, since most people will not have access to that real experience, what are the different things? If you were if, if you were advising our country as, as if you were professionally advising our country against engaging in conflict, I mean, what would you do? What would you recommend people do that people reconsider? Because it does look like people that many people are in a hurry to settle scores or to uh, or to uh, enact their different agendas? How do you slow people down? I mean, I don't think we're exactly at that stage yet, but nonetheless, how do we slow people down and tell them to step back and say, I don't think you quite understand what this will look like, what you think you have in mind, what this will look like? Yeah. Is, it, is it an edu educational program? Well, I mean, what what do we do? Well, you know, and this is going to be this is kind of coming from my 
you know, my very traditionalist way of looking at the world. But um, I do, you know, I agree with you. I think that things are speeding up so much. A lot of this comes from technology. I think that the destruction of our civic culture, um, the state of our social fabric now, um, it's been, it's making these, it's making these technological advancements or changes to our society a lot more sharp and, and, and a little bit more hostile to, you know, what, what I would say would be our most innate human nature, um, which is really when people live around each other, when they familiarize with themselves with one another, they don't always necessarily like each other, but there's a level of understanding that is forged naturally. Um, we're kind of being torn away from that. And so, you know, I do think we are, I actually believe we are in a state of war, but it's not kinetic. So I think that huh. we are kind of involved in a, a civil war of sorts, but that it's mostly through information. It's through other mediums that we're, we're allowing ourselves to kind of attack one another and to win battles and, and beat retreats and things like that. But my, you know, what I advocate, what I try to practice, and I struggle with this, to be honest, it's something I think all of us do, but this is why family matters so much to me is family, the organic, the wonderful things of life that you can touch and feel and that you can experience that keep you rooted to your your sense of, of self and humanity. Those kinds of things are really important in a time like this. Uh, they serve as anchor points in a lot of ways. And so, you know, when I, I spend time, you know, reading to my children or we walk together, you know, to the park or we, I, I try to focus on spending time that you get those real human connections and investing and cultivating those because really we're all being kind of torn up. We're being uprooted from those things in exchange for these technological you know, platforms and experiences that are sim they're they're simulated. They're not necessarily real, so they they kind of amplify these these forces that strip us of of some of those fundamental parts of who we are. And I think that you know I don't know how effective it is. Unfortunately, it's one of these where I don't know if being more rooted and being more oriented in the things that matter are going is going to be the best defense against these things. I, I mean, I, well, it's not maybe the best offense against these things, but it can help you retain a level of your humanity where most people seem to be losing it. And, and I think that we owe it to ourselves, but we also owe it to our children to make sure that we do that and we protect ourselves that way. No, I think that's a, I think that's a very, very interesting point. I mean, the idea that you don't, <coughs> excuse me, that you don't run off and lose your head, the idea that you don't run off and start doing uh, things to spur the moment you remember what grounds you in different places and who needs you and what you need what are the different what are the different important things um, why do you say okay it's, it's not kinetic but what tells you what are the different elements that tell you right now someone who is a veteran that tells you we're at war mm. um, formal so war yeah no I well in in some respects, I would say this a good a good recent example of something that I think gives us a window into looking at it through a lens of conflict is the doxing and the the attacks on individuals in their in their what you would say like their natural habitat. So 
instead of these technological right. platforms occupying a limited space of their own, where the form is strictly communication or the form is sharing ideas, you're seeing that these technological platforms are being used as venue or avenues into reaching into somebody's life and destroying it or uprooting it, de- you know, attack, right. you know, attacking people, making them feel unsafe, making them feel threatened in their their relationships with other people. So, you know, in the beginning, it was always these technological platforms will allow, it will amplify these connections and relationships we have. What we're finding is while it it amplifies many of those connections, it also gives people the capacity and the ability to disrupt and destroy what they see are their their opposition. So, you know, you and I come from a, an America that, you know, people could be passionate, they could argue, but it it had a certain stopping point. You know, when, when the debate was over, the debate right. was over. You know, maybe it pop up in the papers, but these things were kind of isolated yeah. away from the day-to-day lives of people. Now people are on on these platforms and they're using them to try to destroy other people's lives. And I think if you took somebody from another country you know, or maybe the United States, you know, decades ago, and you you showed them how we are interacting with one another in such a combative way and using these platforms to not not even attack politicians necessarily or to go after people that have positions of prestige or authority, but going after, right. you know, a stay-at-home mom or going after, you know, a plumber. And these kinds of these yeah. kinds of activities to me signify that there's something more going on. It it very much resembles the type of, of warfare. Right. What when when will people get the idea that it's I mean, I, I just saw something yesterday on social media, some guy who is you know, who's basically trying to inspire people to go after Supreme, uh, especially Samuel Alito for uh you know for his for the uh, for the uh, ostensibly or, or allegedly leaked decision right that he wrote on uh, uh on reversing uh, roe v wade and it just struck me as though it just struck me as it struck me not just that this was a call to violence but that once you get into violence you never quite can anticipate how it escalates what are the different mm-hmm. things that are likely to happen? Someone calls for violence and then just all the different, uh, because that's just the nature of violence, right? It's, it's at a certain point, it becomes very difficult to contain. So again, as someone who understands these things, who's experienced, you know, who's experienced warfare, who's a veteran, how will this go? At what point, if it does, and I didn't mean, again, I didn't mean to compel you to, to talk what this but this clearly seems to be you know to talk about you know i mean god forbid that americans you know start shooting at each other but uh how how do we stay out of, how do we stay out of this conflict or how do we walk this conflict back yeah no I... when when will he, when will we have gone too far and say well now it's free now now it is shooting hmm. No, that's a good question. I, you know, and I think it's something that I, I think about a lot and I, I work over through my mind. You know, my, my background in the military was a special operations community. And so for me, I look at things in maybe a, 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 through a different lens than a conventional, maybe like a conventional, a veteran of the conventional military would. 
So this is taken with a grain of salt, but <clears throat> I tend to see these things as um, what, what makes this type of warfare more dangerous is there's no, there aren't many mechanisms to slow it down. Uh, the, the mechanism that seems to slow it down, it's not even a mechanism, but the thing that slows it down the most is that these mob actions, these swarm effects tend to get tired or distracted. It's not that there are mechanisms built in to slow them down or to stop them. And why they're dangerous in this environment is because we have we have lawmakers and people that that should kind of be at the top of this food chain, you know, in the past where these institutions wielded a heavy stick to be able to stop, you know, look at just a kinetic mob. If you have a kinetic mob that is trying to lynch somebody or do something extra legal, um, there typically is that apex predator, which would be like your, and I'm borrowing a lot of this from John Robb, by the way. Um, but yeah. you're going to have your apex from, from who? John Robb. <laughs> he's a, uh, he's, Oh, a, I, don't, I don't know who that is. Who is that? Oh, he's, he's fantastic. So he, he has a military oh. background also started many companies, but he, he kind of theorizes on some of these swarm effects. Uh, he, he's got a, a lot of great literature out there and he's on Twitter too. You can follow, hmm. um, I think he's fantastic. Ah, okay. um, but, you know, you oh, really interesting. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, he, you know, he kind of comes up with this idea that you have like this apex predator. So in the past, it would be like you would have a, a very robust police presence that could put down a mob. If it had to get bigger than that, then that would be your next level entity within the government. So these institutions could flex out and be fairly effective. Uh, what we're finding now, though, is that institutions have lost their ability to manage these problems and what is more beneficial to lawmakers now or politicians would be to use the forces that they have, that they can kind of manage or manipulate at times, but really just, you know, we kind of saw that with these Supreme court justices is there were many folks left of center in positions of power and authority who seemed to tacitly endorse these tactics and why it's dangerous is these mechanisms don't exist for stopping the mob. I think, you know, from a military mind, I would say the only way to Hmm. really do anything about this would be to, there has to be, it has to be met with some kind of force. And what I mean by that is if people are using these swarm effects to reach into the individual lives of people who are quote unquote on your side, you have to have a way to protect them, but also I think that there has to be a level of the folks that engage in this sort of thing also have to understand that this could reach back into their lives. And so I have been hopeful with seeing things like defamation. I've been hopeful with Mm -hmm. seeing folks that try to dox and expose other people also have their own identities revealed. I don't like that kind of warfare. It's definitely like fear by fire, but I don't know if this can be walked back without breaking a lot of people's lives. And so I think that there has to, I think that on my side of the political aisle, we have to kind of wake up a little bit and realize that if we don't do something a little more forcefully about this, it's, it's going to cut our legs out from under us. Wow. Right. Um, So what, what happened? I mean, was the, was the, the authority of the apex predator, if I'm if I'm using the terminology right, let's say the police, right? Was the authority, I mean, cut out? Is that what the def- 
defunding the police movement is about. It's about it's about um, hollowing out all of that authority and then redistributing it among different street figures, among what are effectively militias that are controlled by political by political interests. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how, how did the apex predator, or how did uh, yeah, how how did the top dog lose its authority here? At, at, at a very I guess it's dangerous anytime the authorities would lose would lose their power. Yeah, I so what I would I would say is and there's a couple lenses I'm going to look at this through. In on one sense I think what we're seeing is is that the traditional left and right in this country are uh, we've changed a lot. Um we don't really have a sense of shared common culture. Most of the common culture that is cited or at least you know people people signal to tends to be a little more artificial than real. And I think that the left and right attracts um, to, I would say what's really separating us is the right tends to attract a more traditional element folks that view. I, I, a lot of people like to bring it down to policy level. I think at the policy level might've made Mm -hmm. more sense, you know, decades ago, I would say that Mm -hmm. there, there is a, an element within the left that is inherently more uh, in a sense of like disunion. I don't mean that like as disunion of necessarily the United States of America, but there's right. there's a, a sense of leveling and a a, a sense of dis, disunion and disruption that kind of is at the, I would say at the core wow. of what the left is today. Whereas the right, I would say is, is more clinging to what I would say would be old America. And as these hmm. these forces cannot be reconciled, um, it creates a lot of conflict and you attract people that are, I would say, are maybe a little more, you know, whereas old definitions might have held today. You I think you see folks that are are clinging to this older version of America versus people that are hmm. in some ways rejecting that. And so that becomes an irreconcilable point and where I think that the police come involved in the what you know John Robb would call your apex predator of the nation state is as these technological mm. forces and market forces have become so powerful it's been really difficult for these institutions to be able to manage the this tiger by the tail and what ends up happening with this is that you have you have you have this sense of of breakdown that what i would argue like with the defund the police um the left, the way the left operates in this country is these, you know, it doesn't typically go to hollow out and capture institutions that are already in its grasp. So the military was Mm. one of those institutions that was traditionally a bastion for, you know, conservative America. It has been mostly captured. I would say that the police are an exception to that. So the police for a very long time were more local. Um, You know, you had different cultures within police departments, but tended to be a little more conservative. I think a lot of the of the impetus behind attacking the police wasn't so much about the issue that was, you know, as we all know, like that kicked off the riots as much as it was about a institution that had not been captured and been able to be wielded. And so what ends up happening with this is that we have, you know, now we have these police departments that are now very much under the control of what you would say would be like political functionaries and insiders that are right. very much 
that they're very much loyal to this perspective and to this left wing way of looking at civil society that is very different and it creates a lot of destabilization. And I would say that their assault on the police departments was effective. Um, if you look mm. at the way that the, that the, uh, the crime in our country has been yeah, right. exploding and how, you know, even the person who attacked um, Dave Chappelle was released right away. Yeah. I mean, this just amazing. Example. Amazing. No felony charge. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, look, you, 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 you had something, I, I think it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was on Twitter. You, I, I believe that you said something, you were remarking about the LSATs about how, um, you know, lawyers are going to f- start to find out what it's like, what it's been like for uh, military officers to try to pretend that your profession is still whole when it's not. Can I, I think this is something that you were referring to when you just said um, the military has mostly been captured. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think that most people are surprised to hear that, um, you know, that the American, uh, you know, that the American military has been captured by, you know, has been captured by the forces of woke. Yeah. No, yeah. I, and I think I've watched, I, I was able to watch this firsthand uh, happen in real time where I kind of, I believe that I witnessed the changing of the guard between the old American military and this new mass organization mm. military that, even though the military has always been big, you know, World War II shows us yeah. that mass organization was definitely a big part of our military success. But at the same time, I think that the cultural change that took place has happened fairly recently. It took a while for it to get to this point. Um, so what I would say is this a good way to look at this. You can see this within any organization to know that it's been captured is you see that is the sole per the, the main purpose if you could sum up what the mission of this institution is what would it be and with the military most people would say mm-hmm. you know to effectively fight and win wars um and so typically with older institutions that were oriented around a central purpose or mission um you see how successful they are at accomplishing that and where the culture is within that institution is 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 a person's success in this institution does it align with the mission of the institution? So are this people that are successful, are the people that huh. work within this institution, are do they is their success contingent upon the mission of that their their purported mission? With the military, you know, you can I saw this firsthand as, you know, I came from the special operations community where you know being highly technically skilled, tactically proficient, being incredibly like well good in shape and and being able to do these things, very difficult things, um, that was considered to be success, right? And so there was a real metric of actual, what I would say would be like true merit, the kind of merit people, you know, think of when they think of like what a real merit, what most Americans would want to believe merit is. Um, But over time, you know, you, I've I've watched many people that embody that sense of merit, excellent soldiers, great leaders, Mm that fell under the axe of this woke thing, you know, of the, of the really? social justice equality, um, uh, you know, hammer. And so I watched that happen and I watched our standards change to accommodate hmm. more of a sense of equality. And I think it just comes down to this is when equality and justice become 
political and moral imperatives in an institution, yeah. that's when you know it's been captured. And so I watched that happen with the military. I watched our standards become diluted. I watched people lie to 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 make things seem like, you know, make the standards seem like they were being met by individuals who checked those boxes. And, you know, for a soldier, that's very dangerous because I look at this as any little thing. You're taught when you go out in the field, if you forget something, you can get someone killed. If you can't run fast, you can get someone killed. Everything comes down to making sure that you don't aren't the person that causes one of your brothers in arms to die, you know, um, or you aid the enemy in some way. But see, all of these these small little adjustments and the the lies and the cheating, those kinds of things that get filtered into this, um, when they're rewarded, you start hollowing out the, that culture and then you start to change the mission of that organization. And so, uh, sorry to be long winded, but essentially. No, no, no. This is fantastic. This is this is really important. I'm really grateful for this. <laughs> So when you when I when I was watching these metrics change, you know, and I I would see the same kind of playbook every time if it was somebody being able to do one of the events on the new fitness test. If it was a leg tuck, for example, very challenging. But, you know, traditionally, it's been very difficult for females to do leg tucks. It it takes certain kind of strength and endurance. That's it's probably more challenging. Um, But watched a a very strong media campaign go against the military to try to get them to change that because of a sense of disparate impact. And so what you're seeing to me is that just symbolizes that when the institution has to bow down to that political and moral imperative, which is, you know, contrasts to its actual mission, you know, them, you know, that place has been captured and you know that it no longer will serve the kind of mission that it purports to serve. Um, so, I mean, this is something that, you know, that Jesse Kelly keeps writing on Twitter, and I believe he says it on his radio and TV show that America is destined to wind up on the losing end of uh, of a war very soon. Um, I mean, if, if, if I mean, you know, if, if, if we haven't already. So, but you're saying that this is true even of our special operations community. You've seen it. I mean, not that it's okay for you know, for the rank and file military, but to say that this is true of the special operations community as well? Yes, I, you know, I, I think that the special operations community is, you know, that they're, they're going to hold out a lot longer than the conventional force, but it's going to get there. And the, and it's, this is just kind of baked into the cake of mass organization. You know, I'm a big, I really like James Burnham and the managerial revolution. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Sam Francis wrote about this. But we're really seeing the the end of old American, the old American culture of the way that we did things. And, you know, baked into the cake of this nation was very much a a strong emphasis on merit, on results. And what has happened over time, the evolution of our society is we've become a much more managerial society. And so when you have like maybe in the past where a heroic figure in the military, for example, uh, would be seen as somebody who should be leading troops, should be accelerating on their career path because they're good at what they do. In times like these, more and more, what we, we seem to elevate the managerial types, the folks that are able to manage mass organizations. And so most of these cultural changes feel very offensive to us because they conflict with merit. 
But what they're really doing, and, and this is kind of like the point I try to drive home a lot when I talk on Twitter is a lot of these things that we regurgitate, you know, whether it's our commitments to diversity and inclusion, these we tend to view them as these very strong, like moral, ethical um, benefits to our society, something that we all you know subscribe to because we're good people. But what these things are mostly are, they're tools of homogenization. They're to make these mass organizations be more homogenous so that they function more seamlessly, that they're more efficient, not necessarily that they accomplish their mission. So in the military, it might not actually help us win any conflict, but it will help the machine stay running. And so- That's a fascinating way to put it. That's a really interesting way to put it. It makes, it, it makes sense in an entirely different way. When you put it like that, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a, and so I think in the in the short term, I think we're going to see these changes. We're going to see these changes continue because mm. the individuals that are accelerated on their careers, the people that find great success in these institutions, tend to be the very you know banal, boring, managerial types. Right. I think a good example of this would be like your your secretary Mayorkas, you know, for DHS is, you know, he's probably not a bad guy. I think, you know, he's probably you could have lunch with him and think he's probably a really pleasant individual. But he's your typical managerial elite who is going to just they're they're going to do what a manager needs to do to keep the mass organization moving along, growing constantly, uh, you know, tackling problems in the in a very managerial way these things is this is the trajectory we're on what i argue and i this is where i agree with jesse kelly is war doesn't work like that and if if we meet an adversary that can exploit that which i would argue that we did we have before on a very small scale compared to a large scale conflict it's going to be disastrous and what i worry about is i managerial like a managerial military is not going to win against a military that that prioritizes winning over managing and that's you managers are not good leaders typically managers and leaders are very different things and so i worry about that it's something that i don't want to see americans die for that but i i don't see any kind of escape hatch or any exit from the trajectory we're on you were saying before you were the way you were describing it, the way you're describing the 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 way you were describing the right was saying it's not really the right anymore. It's just people who are more who are more uh, more aligned with traditional American values and traditional America. And, and, and then there's the, the other the forces lined up against it, which are forces of dis, of disunity, which are forces of, you know, I, I, I entirely agree forces of disorder. And desecration and chaos. So, what are in that situation? I'll put it like this: in that situation, what does courage mean? Right to stand up for your, to stand up for what we call traditional American values, for the country that we were raised in, for the country whose values we love, that we still that we still see embodied and exemplified all the time in our in our daily lives. And, 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 and heightened environments as well. What does it mean to stand up for these things? How do we stand up for them? Yeah, what, what, what is, because you write so well about courage. 
So what does courage mean in this context? Uh, um, I would say I, I typically, you know, when I'm writing to people, I, I always, my people always say, you know, as an author, imagine your audience. I, you know, who I think of when I think of my audience is I think of just good, humble, regular folks. Those are the people I grew up around. Um, just the kind of people that embody those values that built this country, those quote unquote bourgeois values that America became the greatest nation in the world because of that culture. And it was humble, everyday people being honest, working hard, raising good families. And, and to me, I, you know, those are my people. That's my audience if I have one. And so other folks might go out there and, you know, pontificate on big grand theories and, you know, talk about, you know, people going out there and dying on the ramparts. I'm not like that. I, I think about my audience and I think about regular people and I know how difficult it is. I know that courage is something that, that is not easy to come by. Um, And I don't blame people for being afraid. It's a very uncertain world Mm -hmm. we're in. You mean at this, at this, at this particular moment, you don't blame people for being afraid. I don't. I, and why I say that is because courage is not, not being afraid. It's not having no fear. Courage is swallowing that fear and doing the right thing. And so it is normal to be afraid and it is, it is understandable to have to make decisions that are difficult. And sometimes you can't go out and take an extraordinary risk because you have people that you love and you're trying to take care of. I understand these things, but what I do think everyone can do that is that every one of us can do, you know, from the, the smallest among us, people with the least amount of power or voice is you can refuse to say the lie. You can refuse to identify the lie. It's, I I think anybody who's listening, if you haven't read Vaclav Havel's um, Power of the Powerless, it's a very inspirational um, essay. He was a dissident living in in the Czech Republic when it was still under the Iron Curtain. Um, And he wrote about how everyday people have the ability to not lie. And I think that the first thing we all should do, because we're surrounded by these lies, and many of these lies are, like I said, rem- they're kind of residue of these mass organizations that that kind of have to rely on lies to get complete buy-in and to kind of force people to be homogenous and to go along with the program. But many times these lies are very costly and they hurt us and they hurt people we care about. I think what, it's important just if you can't say the truth outright, don't lie. But then for those who can, who maybe they can, they, you know, they're not lying. Um, they're not repeating the lies. They're not ennobling those lies. They're not dignifying the lies. You know, when someone accuses someone, you know, of being racist and you know that they're not racist, don't dignify that lie. Don't repeat the mantras. Don't use the language that is being used. You're right. essentially, you don't sharpen your enemy's tools, but when you have been able to do that and you're in a position where you can, I think speaking truth is a very powerful thing. Um, I, I really do. And I, you know, I, I, I know, I don't know yeah. the partisan leaning of everybody on the, in the audience, but something Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump didn't always tell, he sometimes told fibs and things like that. Donald Trump also said the truth in a way 
that no one was willing to say in the political class. And I would argue that's one of the reasons he was so successful. Mm. And he talked about the border in a truthful manner. For the first time, somebody right. in a political position could talk about this problem in, a, in, the, in the right way. It yeah. created a seismic change in our country's uh, policy agenda. And so I, I think that people can make sure that they try to tell the truth and that in and of itself is kind of a revolutionary act. What are our, what are our chances? Hmm. Um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, no, it's okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic because yeah, because we're Americans and there's not a lot of room for despair and it's not, you know, it's, it's not, it's not really in our character. It's a, it's an aspect of it, but it's not, it's not basically who we are, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's a hard time. It's a hard time for lots of people and lots of people are feeling it. Lots of people are feeling it really, really badly right now. So what do you think? What are our chances that we come out of this, that we come out of, yeah, that we come out of this, uh, the great country, the great country that we are, or how much are we broken? What happens? Yeah, I, so I think, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, again, I'm not. Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I, I would say something that I would say an optimistic thing to, for folks to, to think about is, you know, the whole world is going through some pretty difficult times. And we, thankfully, because of many generations of Americans who came before we are in a position, as bad as things are, we are in a position where we have, we still have a lot of, we still have a lot of runway with, you know, like the effects of globalization is is collapsing in, in many ways. The globalization we all grew up with is probably never going to come back. And that this is going to be devastating to certain countries. You know, I think countries like China are on a very bad footing right now. I don't think it's going to improve for them. But the, but the United States, given many blessings that we have received, many of much of the blood, sweat and tears put in by prior generations, yeah. has put us in a position of, of strength in many, in many different respects. The problem we are all encountering now, though, is that we are in absolute social chaos. My opinion on this is I think it's going to continue to get kind of bad. I do think there are going to be some mm-hmm. difficult battles and there are going to be casualties. But at the same time, I am seeing certain forces that I think make me feel a little optimistic. And um, a good example of this is I like know, what? Well, yeah. <laughs> I would say this is, you know, this this issue with Roe being overturned. I know that this mm, is a good example, yes. I think, for what we're talking about is, yes, this is going to cause a lot of immediate pain. There's going to be a lot of emotions, anger. And there's going to be a lot of, right. um, of, of, I would say, street protests that could border on violence for all we know. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that the nature of Roe being overturned puts the onus at a more decentralized level again for a very contentious social mm-hmm. issue. One of the reasons why yeah. this disastrous you know, affair that we're in is because though Roe elevated certain social issues and put them outside of the purview of the people, put them outside of the hands of that decentralized apparatus that exists, but doesn't get utilized fairly enough. 
And so what I think is going to happen is issues like this, there is even the sense of us becoming more polarized. It is creating a natural decentralization in many respects, mm. which I think is in, very important. I do believe the United States is going to go through another soft regime change, similar to what we saw when mm. FDR came in and completely re kind of, it was a soft, in many ways, it was a soft regime mm. change into the New Deal regime. We're still living in the vestiges of that. I think whatever comes mm. out of the other end of this is going to be a soft regime change. And I think it will usher in a, a time of more stabilization. What I'm hoping will happen mm. is a, I'm hoping that these forces of this disunion will help decentralize much of the power and influence. And by doing that, like something like Roe, by doing that, it will actually help us to release some of the tensions that keep building up at the top and become very costly and very destructive. If we can, if we can see maybe a return to some of those federalist principles, we might be able to survive a little longer and handle some of these problems in a more, you know, efficient and better way so that people can live the way they want to. That's very interesting. A friend of mine always puts it in, it puts it in terms of, he says, I guess I believe that history actually moves in a dialectic. He says all the things that you think are, are bad right now, you know, history doesn't move like that in a straight line. Right. So one way to see one way to see the horrible COVID lockdowns is there was a reshuffling of the United States in lots of ways. The vast internal migration, people moved around and there's lots of people who move to red states, red cities, red areas where they feel where they feel more comfortable with the people they're with. So th there was a reshuffling. There was a reshuffling in ways, which is a good thing. And maybe that power will go back to these states in different ways. And I agree. The idea that, you know, the idea that decisions over abortions will be made in more in more localized and more localized regions seems like a very excellent idea. Seems like a very excellent outcome. Yes, I, I think that that's a good way to look at it. I, I look at civilization kind of like an organism. And um, while I think I think many things are, are very challenging and I think the organism is is not it's not doing very well in many respects. I would say though, at the same time, like people organism, like this organic thing is also fairly resilient and human beings are resilient. Hmm. And um, like you said, you know, with the lockdowns and much of the tension that was built up, there's always going to be other unintended consequences that are not necessarily always disfavorable. You know, I would look at right. the overturning of Roe um, I don't know how much that's actually going mm. to change the midterm map. I, I have a feeling it won't actually have the kind of impact that was being projected. Right. And one of the reasons for that is we watched, you know, street protests, you know, burn half the country down in 2020. There's a lot of exhaustion right. out there for this. There's not a lot of, and there's a lot of demoralization. And so I think that we have to be careful not to become too apocalyptic. I don't think we should be complacent, no. but you know, there these these things are could have a lot of unintended consequences that are actually very good. And that decentralization piece, I think, mm. is is really important. That's really interesting. Well, look, last question. I, I want to let you go. First of all, I want to I, I want to thank you for after all the uh, after our technical our technical problems at the outset. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for for sticking with us. This has been a really fantastic conversation, Lafayette. 
I can't thank you enough. But I do want to ask you before we let you go. So um, do you have any plans right now for longer writing projects, whether that's a book or what are your plans for, yeah, for writing right now? No, um, I think so. Right now, I've I've got this grace period. I, I'm in between mm-hmm. jobs right now, so I suddenly have much more time than I did before. So uh-huh. I've been trying to make some projects and I am I am looking at long form writing a little bit and possibly a book, but I, I'm That's also looking great. at uh, writing some children's books. I'm very passionate about oh, wow. um, that moral formation for like the moral formation for children, I think is very important. And my wife and I homeschool. And so there's, I, you know, I kind of uh-huh. get a front row seat at some of these things. And so I really want to incorporate some of these these values and moral lessons that I think are very important for young children into a, a medium that is exciting. It's enjoyable. Uh, and it's something that, that they can remember. And so I'm looking at possibly doing that as well. And then I'll continue writing on the sub stack. Um, I've been working a little bit with Braxton McCoy on the bunkhouse project. And there's some things there also that we're, we're doing. So got a lot of irons in the fire, uh, but hopefully we That's can pull some stuff out by the end of the year. That's really exciting. Um, that's really exciting. And congratulations. And congratulations on uh, move, uh, while you're in between jobs. Hope you're moving on to something, uh, moving on to something great that's, uh, uh, that's deserving of your, of your talents and attention. Really, I can't thank you enough for all the, for, for the time and the insights and the information you gave us today. So Lafayette Lee, thank you so much. What a fantastically, uh, yeah, what a fantastically great time just to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. No, thank and, you. Um, thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll, we'll be talking to you again soon. And in the meantime, wishing everyone a, a great rest of your weekend. And we'll see you next Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the uh, Lee Smith Show. In the meantime, Lafayette Lee, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you, Lee. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks.